With this background in mind, we move on to the next cases presented by Drs. Slobovath and Gamblin and typify some of the complex issues in the surgical management of HCC. In that regard, the group noted a paper in the June issue of the American Journal of Surgery by Schwartz and Smith looking at data from the SEER database on outcomes of various local modality treatments for HCC. The median age was 65, and 73% of patients were men. Mortality at 30 days was 8% in patients resected, 3% for transplant, and 3% for ablation. Actuarial five-year survival was 67% after transplant, 35% after resection, and 20% after ablation. The authors concluded that, quote, long-term HCC survival can be observed after all three treatment approaches, but is best after transplantation and resection, although likely biased through confounding patient selection variables. Preferred HCC treatment should be individualized based on morbidity and long-term overall survival prospects, end quote. Dr. Tholovas's patient highlights the complexity of these cases. This is a 52-year-old man with HCV cirrhosis. Um, he was followed at another hospital, and he had a 3.2-centimeter hypervascular mass in the right lobe of the liver. No ascites. Portal vein was patent, AFP was 428. He had small varices, CTP score was 5. No other significant comorbidities, and he had a potential live donor. The question is, what is the best modality of treatment? Is there a role for TASE or serafinib prior to definitive treatment? And what is the stage of this patient by AJCC or UNOS? So we're going to ask the first question, you know, what is the best modality of treatment? HCV cirrhosis, 3.2 centimeter hypervascular single lesion, segment 8. Dr. Gamblin? Live donor. Live donor? I think. I mean, he's stage 2. He's got the male bonus points. He's at the top of the list. He could even, if he didn't have a live donor, I still think he should get a liver transplant. Bert? Right. Most hep C patients are not, but... Mm. Laboratory-wise, they might be resectable. But one point here is that some are saying we have to see if he's resectable before we see whether resection is superior to transplant, rather than saying, regardless of whether he's resectable, the first question you should ask, is he transplantable, not is he resectable? So, but again, that's controversy. I think that the jury's still out on which should be the first default. I think based on the survival figures, we would say transplant is the best curative option, wouldn't you? Even if it is resectable, 70% recurrence at five years is quite high. But I do think this area is controversial, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on it. But remember that there is a limited donor pool. There are variable duration of waiting lists. A lot of these numbers are not based on intention to treat, but on from the time of transplant, which selects out better mm-hmm. biology. Mm-hmm. The other issue is that what is the salvage rate in those patients with HCC that are resected that recur? Belgetti wrote, reported on this. So if you do the resection first, first of all, you can assess the biologic features of the tumor and then follow those patients and either transplant if they develop progressive disease or either recurrence or worsening failure. And it may be that doing a salvage transplant using resection as a bridge, if you will, may be actually a more effective strategy in someone like this. So it's controversial. Okay. Well, the same thing with taste. There were like three or four studies from Germany that showed that taste can be used as a predictor of tumor biology. But Even I think, in that setting. Like in this setting, they would just list the patient and taste the patient. Right. And we'll do that commonly. Yeah. 
So if a bridge to transplant where you're definitely planning transplant, I think TACE or even RFA is a... But the other strategy is using resection as a bridge, but only in selective, Mm -hmm. let's say, a selective bridge. If they recur or fail or you learn something about the biology that suggests you should transplant that patient. And I think it's a little bit different than the pure bridge strategy. So what happened with this patient? There has been a study that treatment taste response may predict who's going to recur. But in this patient, he will get the extra ML points, you know, 20 points. So I would opt for a deceased donor liver transplant as the first option, even if there was a live donor. If it was a smaller tumor, if there was a long waiting period, I might opt for a live donor. So this patient was transplanted in an outside center. And how did he do? What happened? He did very well. Could you go through for the, again, the oncologist in practice, the whole MELD thing? Yes. MELD stands for Model for End-Stage Liver Disease. As you know, child pew score, there are three blood tests and two clinical assessment, ascites and encephalopathy. So the staging of that could be a bit subjective, and the physician tend to utilize that to transplant their patients. If they wanted an earlier transplant, they could say ascites is severe or encephalopathy is moderate and give extra points to get the patient transplanted sooner. So model of end-stage liver disease use only three biochemical tests. One is bilirubin, then prothrombin time, and creatinine. Using a mathematical modeling, you can have a score which range from 0 to 40. And so it's a continuous sort of numbers, and you can give the liver transplant to the person with the highest number. So because there is a larger scatter, and it is objective in some way, you could say that people cannot manipulate. But people could do. You, know, you can give coumadin, or you can give some diuretics and wow. increase what? the uh, male score. Interesting. So in other words, the etiology then doesn't factor in. It's the liver functionality? That's right. That is the mal- but patients with liver dis- cancer, even if their MELD score is low, they get MELD point, extra MELD point. These are arbitrary points given. It's one of the reasons they're so close monitoring because there was a time when patients got livers that were not good livers. The liver got sewn in the patient. The patient then got very sick, put them in the ICU, and then their MELD score went through the roof. It's a predictor of mortality. And then they got a liver switch. Then they got to the top of the list with a marginal liver at the beginning. So there's a lot of very close monitoring that has to go on nationwide to make certain that there's not abuse of the system. I mean, the MELD, and I'll certainly defer to my hepatology colleagues, but the MELD is designed to predict short-term mortality so that patients who are sickest get to the top of the list. But we know that there are patients with well-compensated liver disease that could be cured and that have HCC, well-compensated liver disease and HCC, that could be cured, but they'll never get a liver because they're not decompensated or they don't have abnormal labs. So the MELD exemption is not arbitrary. It is to give these patients enough points that their risk of falling off the list in a short-term is equal to those patients that might die from the disease. This patient was put on sorafenib by his physician prior to liver transplant for three months. And then he got a liver transplant. And the explant showed the tumor was four centimeter with vascular and lymphatic invasion. So four months later, he comes to me for a second opinion. He wanted to know whether he should take sorafenib. Now, he took it three months before transplant, then stop taking it. How did he do on it? Any problems? 
With the serafinib? When he, prior to liver transplant, he didn't have any side effect. He did extremely well. So he has been going around many, many tertiary centers asking the same question. Should I be taking serafinib now? Because the surgeons told him, you have 80% five-year survival. But if you look at the explant, he doesn't have 80% five-year survival because his tumor had vascular and lymphatic invasion. The question he had was, what do you recommend? So he's just got to go see Rich. That's all he's got to do. This guy called me last week. Uh, he did? When I'm seeing patients post-transplant and discussing this, I think I'm extrapolating from breast and colon where adjuvant has been proven. And if they're more than two months, two, three months out from transplant, I don't offer it to them. As far as a bridge to transplant, the few patients that we've done it on are patients who are no longer amenable to local control, taste or RFA, either because of bilirubin problems or location problems, and are just waiting for a transplant, but are at high risk for progression, those are patients we might offer serafin. By the time he called me, he was, I think, three months out yeah. already, on the cusp, and he had gone to several centers in New England and the East Coast, and I said I would offer him you know, if he had a doctor willing to manage him closely, I said, I don't think it's unreasonable based on your pathology to consider it or at least try it. If you can't tolerate it, the decision's made. Well, he already took it once, I guess, and did yeah. pretty well. See, my Well, he did not do pretty well. He that's, did. Well, he did he well no physically. With the he didn't do but he on explant. That's what I'm saying. Oh, he did not, the presumably, he did not prevent the tumor from invading. Uh, oh, it might have already was invaded. I'm talking about how yeah. he tolerated therapy. Physically, yes, he did well. So his uh, five-year survival, expected survival, if you look at the various staging system, AJCC would say that it is about 50%. Right, but if right. you go by UNOS criteria, if you say vascular invasion, he has very low survival, actually. He 20%. would not have gotten, I told him, he would not have gotten a transplant had they known preoperatively that he had LVI. So he, you know, he's one who should take that because his recurrence rates are going to be actually, very high. Actually, he said someone at Hopkins told him to consider it, and now I, I know who. Now you know <laughs> put it all together. So I told him that a- there is no evidence, but... Right. I, if I were him, I would take it. Right. So just, what is the kind of work did this man do? I'm curious about his background. He's been so he persistent. He's quite an educated person. You know, he knew all the literature he has read, but he right. wanted to talk to the people. But you he's know, not he, a medical person. No. And you think he was able to understand? Absolutely. I mean, this stuff, I think it's understandable yeah. to an educated person. Yeah, absolutely. Just to comment again, back to this, no data to support adjuvant therapy, either neoadjuvant or post. And in transplant brings up another issue, and that is that these are immunosuppressed patients. We have no idea how serafinib interacts in these patients. And unless somebody has some data Mike, to we, show ha- a we have done profile. at least uh, four patients post-transplant. I have looked at the immunosuppression level. That doesn't look like significant interaction. The immunosuppression level, the tacrolimus rapamine level, barely changes. Yeah. Wait, say that again? What, you've looked at what? I mean, the a lot of those tacrolimus level or yeah. rapamine level, yeah. when you add sorafenib, the level we don't have to adjust the dose. So you, this is in four post, patients? Post-liver, uh, four patients. These are adjuvant or these are recurrences after transplant? Recurrence after transplant. Recurrence after transplant, okay.